Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, the show about critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me, as always, is Cameron. Yep. And you can tell he is thrilled to be here in Episode 7, Part 3, when we are continuing to read Act 6 of Homestuck. I love it. Honk. What do you love about it? Honk. Honk, honk. Honk, honk, honk. Uh, what do I love it? I love reading uh, the thoughts and feelings of characters who I don't know anything about. <laughs> in, in a comic which assumes that from jump, I'm immediately invested in them. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's the first thing I love. Uh, the second thing I love is the from zero to 60 acceleration of a comic that the most erotic expression that had ever been uttered before was sloppy makeouts. Mm-hmm. And the zero to 60 acceleration into long form boner jokes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've entered into a new era of like teen horniness and humor. Yes. We're into the McLovin era oh of Homestuck production. <laughs> and, only... I, and I don't know if the edifice can hold this up. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I agree in that uh, it was very interesting to me that we just did our bonus episode on Promstuck, and one of the discussions we had there was about how that comic as a piece of fan work was a lot more, frankly, sexual than the main comic. Right. And then we jumped back into the main comic, and we see uh, not not quite at the same level, but we see like similar strategies suddenly revving up in the main comic in terms of how frankly it's dealing with uh, you know teen horniness, which of course is not a crime as we all know. Um, right. But uh, just the fact that like we had that bonus episode, now we go back to the comic, and the comic is like, all right, we're going to talk about this a little bit more than we have been in the past. Um. Yeah, I, I thought that was very, very striking. Yeah, it's there's there's something interesting going on with it. Uh, I mean, we'll talk about it more as we get in there. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a different like um, comedic and aesthetic regime. Like mm-hmm. like Homestuck is folding more stuff into it, and I actually don't know if it can. I don't know. I fa- I found this reading and the reading for the next time to be like the most frictional. I do kind of understand, I mean, you know, even at this this early time, the the amount of people who have uh, intersected with us in the show and blah, 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 who have said some form or function of, uh, yeah, stop reading in Act 6. You know, I, I know that I've been on the record saying I would have stopped reading many times before this, but this, this like, I don't know, 500 uh, section, you know, that we read for the recording for these episodes... Uh, I'm really feeling it in there. Mm-hmm. Well, you you aren't alone. Uh, we're approaching some bad times, I guess. Some Uh-oh. desolate times. Uh, in terms of like uh, uh, people's reactions to the comic, but those are things that I guess I can talk about when I do all of the historical contextualization later, after I do the summary. Wow. Jake talks to Roxy about his vision of a hot blue alien babe, and Roxy, juggling all the other Jake crushes she knows about, tells him to cool it. This leaves Jake feeling reflective when Jane messages him next, and he finally asks her directly if she likes him. Jane shocks herself by saying no. 
Jake, however, is relieved, as this means he can now vent to Jane about his complicated feelings regarding Dirk. While Jake's never given serious thought to being in a relationship with another guy, with Jane's extremely reluctant, awkward support, he decides to give it a shot. Meanwhile, the robot hands over the uranium Jake needs to power his robo-bunny and explodes. Jane is understandably upset with herself for getting flustered and torpedoing the Jake situation. Luckily, Dirk's autoresponder continues to oversee preparations for entering the game. On Prospect, Jack Noir tracks down Jane's sleeping dream self and prepares to kill her before getting ambushed and bludgeoned by the White Queen. Roxy explores the lab beneath her house and uses a piece of Spurbian technology to transport Friglish the Cat's corpse back in time to the Beta Kids universe, kickstarting the sequence of events that culminates in the creation of Jasper Sprite. Roxy is then surrounded by dozens of Purpo exiles, who have taken up residence in the lab somehow. She flees through one of her portal windows, but the G-Cat unplugs her exit and teleports it to Dirk's house, trapping Roxy in the furthest ring, where she is attacked by a new, dead, and tough-looking Pisces troll. Dirk wonders why a window portal just appeared in his house before he is messaged by Uranian Umbra's brother, Undying Umbridge. The new UU, who, for clarity's sake, I will refer to as Little U, while Uranian is Big U, wants to play a game. He taunts Dirk with threats of elaborate puzzle-like plans to murder all the kids, though Dirk assumed Little U was just going to demand he draw more weird pornography, which is a thing he apparently does. Little U complains about how Dirk and his friends never seem to accomplish anything, and how much time they spend aimlessly talking. Big U loves to talk and theorize about the game and all the kids' adventures, which Little U despises. Still, he admits that he is going to play the game with his sister, and only pretended he wasn't to hurt her feelings. Then he tells Dirk to grab Lil Cal, whom Little U finds disturbing, and get on with things. Dirk is skeptical that Lil Cal is disturbing, but Little U insists that the puppet is part of a class of objects he calls, and I quote here the text, Jujus. Which, because I'm not hot on playing cavalier with West African religious practices, I am going to call magical MacGuffins. Lil Cal, in particular, is a magical MacGuffin of ill omen, and Little U advises Dirk to destroy it. Dirk won't, but has to leave anyway, as his home is suddenly attacked by an unseen force. In the furthest ring, Roxy escapes the Pisces troll and flees back to the lab. Jane reluctantly begins the process of entering the game. As a glittering object approaches through the atmosphere, Jane's entry item fails to spawn, and every time the autoresponder tries to prototype the kernel sprite, G-Cat interferes and stops it. Simultaneously, Jake heads into the ruins on his island, and Dirk and Roxy head to the roofs of their respective abodes. Jane's counter ticks down to zero, and the approaching object overhead reveals itself to be not a meteor, but the Troll Empress's battleship. Jane enters the game, and we watch as years in the future, but not many. Under the Empress's rule, human civilization crumbles, and Earth is transformed into a flooded hellscape overrun by Alternian wildlife. Dirk and Roxy, who are mind-blowingly revealed to have been living in the Condess's post-apocalyptic future this entire time, are now both faced with approaching battalions of Crocker Corp Imperial drones. Act 6, Act 2 ends. Act 6, Intermission 2 opens with Andrew Hussey in full Calmasis cosplay with an elaborate set of troll horns trying to bottle-feed Spade Slick, whom they have repaired with some cybernetic parts and nursed back to health after the events of Cascade. 
Slick thanks Andrew with a few stabs, and Hussey's friend Miss Paint, a lovely young prospician lady I failed to mention in these summaries despite her being the main character of the adventures we're discussing, who has shown up in several background gags since the end of Act 4, heads over with a solitary bowl of licorice Scotty Dog soup. However, she is stopped dead in her tracks by the sudden appearance of Lord English. On the Meteor Lab, a year into the journey of flying through the furthest ring, Karkat yells at himself through a memo while waxing existential about what it's like to live in an infinite void that is sporadically populated by dead alternate versions of yourself and everyone you know. It's especially galling to him that some of them, such as the god-tier Aridin and Feferi who healed the wounded WV for them, were punished by the so-called Alpha Timeline for basically becoming better people than their quote-unquote real versions. Karkat also suspects Terezi is somehow trying to punish him by spending all her time with Dave in a vaguely flirtatious way. Elsewhere on the meteor, Dave meets up with Rose and Kanaya, who complain about how Gamzee has spent the last year in hiding before they crack open some research Rose has done about the new session. As Rose explains, it's a new type of fucked up scenario called a void session, where the players never prototype anything and the battlefield never evolves, and so without outside intervention, it will never create a new universe. And since the session will never have a proper reckoning, the meteors bearing the baby versions of our protagonists were duplicated from the beta session and then transposed for the scratch, though due to the inexplicable whims of Skya, two of the players were sent four centuries into the future. Karkat shows up and tries to sell Dave on the idea that the two of them and Terezi need to get into a complicated troll romance arrangement and the two boys engage in a good-natured heterosexual tussle about it. On the battleship, Jade and John celebrate John's 14th birthday by playing the Ghostbusters 2 MMO with a bunch of consorts. John is a little irritated by how Jade plays the game and how there seems to be something between her and Dave Sprite. He wonders when they will get to see all their friends again and how much they will have changed in three years, though John insists he doesn't care about any romance that may have been brewing between him and any troll girls. When Jade's dog instincts cause her to chase Jasper Sprite, John is knocked unconscious and enters the dream bubbles, where Roxy's sleepwalking dream self literally steps on his face. He's confused by this, and even more confused when the tough-looking Pisces troll, whose name, we learn, is Mina, wakes him up with a friendly-slash-hostile trident stabbing. Back on the meteor, Terezi watches as the dream bubble they are entering shifts around her to the memory of her room just after she was blinded by Vriska. Friska messages her to both brag and insist that their blood feud is basically even, and Terezi is surprised all over again by how deranged Vriska was. Dream Vriska then reveals herself to be the new spider troll we saw earlier, named Urania, who says that she is Vriska's ancestor. Not exactly Mindfang, but rather the version of her that played the game and lost on pre-scratch Alternia. She's now spent billions of years studying in the dream bubbles, and is excited that the distinct pockets of the furthest ring are finally coming into contact so she can share her incredible knowledge of the game with everyone in long, rambling monologues. Terezi expresses her complicated feelings about Vriska. For as much of a terrible handful she was, Terezi misses her, regrets killing her, and wishes she was still alive. Arania tells her that the burden of those who play the game is that when reality has chosen you to propagate itself, reality only allows certain moves. Arania was her party's healer, and advises Terezi that true healing takes time, though she could restore Terezi's eyesight if Terezi wished. Terezi declines, and Arania leads her to meet up with her friend, Mina. 
Meanwhile, in the furthest ring, the superpowered Jack Noir is still pursued by the superpowered PM. They've been at it for a while. Done with that plot thread. Great work, everybody. Back at Andrew Hussey's mansion, Lord English KOs Miss Paint. A.H., certain English has come to finish off Spade Slick, tosses Slick off a balcony into the ocean for safekeeping, then faces Lord English directly. Hussey notes the nearby herd of majestic stallions racing along a picturesque cliffside, pointing out for English the obvious and delicious irony that English's very demise would be in the proximity of some horses. What? You didn't follow that? Just think it over. Keep thinking it over. Think it over for a long time, to the very end of this partisode even, and perhaps beyond. Anyway, Hussey tries to shoot English with Doc Scratch's gun, but it's unloaded, so Hussey attempts to summon a profound belief in magic to help them out of the scrape. Belief in magic turns out to be inadequate to overcoming magic's notorious bullshit attribute, however, and Lord English uses his flashing multicolored assault rifle to effortlessly murder Andrew Hussey. The author dies, and the comic shifts to a dreamy, dark desert wasteland. The Dream Bubbles, where Vriska wanders among herds of majestic stallions. She comes upon a strange orange fellow lying in the sand, and as she approaches, Andrew Hussey summons the strength to offer Vriska a plain gold ring and ask for her hand in marriage. She is absolutely disgusted, and Act 6, Intermission 2 ends. Green curtains fall on the clockwork act break machines we saw Hussey building back in Act 6, Intermission 1, which are now floating above the ocean outside the mansion. And on April 13th, 2012, the third year of Homestuck ends. Wow. How about all that stuff? <laughs> what sort of stuff? Oh my goodness. It's just a lot of things happening. <laughs> yeah you know what's uh notable about uh all that stuff what is not a lot of plot occurred no no not, not really. a lot of things that moved characters uh forward in some sort of uh eventual space mm-hmm. <laughs> basically one thing happened what is what is the one thing that happened by andrew husky reckoning? got killed oh, okay yeah i guess that's true <laughs> yep but you don't you don't count learning that Dirk and Roxy are in the future as a thing happening? I guess that's a thing happening. I that was definitely played as a surprise that while I was reading, I was not particularly surprised. <laughs> I, were you? Was this like mind blowing for people? I, uh, it's just it's it was such a predictable like not the specific event was obviously predictable, right? But like the uh my ability to be shocked by additional information is almost zero at this point with Homestuck <laughs> because it's such a random assortment of just shit happening, right? Mm-hmm. That that like it should, like the shock effect is worn off quite literally, right? Uh, you know, with especially with the I think post the introduction, you know, I didn't I don't know if I thought about this, um, you know, at the time, but post uh, Dream Bubble stuff right in, mm-hmm. in in which basically any formula you know of character you know like take a character take a context put them together it poops out some new kind of guy right the the dream bubbles afford such a huge capability to quote unquote shock or mm-hmm. like introduce novelty that the abil- that introducing novelty is no longer special. And it right. wasn't really special for a long time, but that really did, I think, 
uh, expand what is like just plausible within the fictional universe, right? When you add a mechanism that's just inventing shocking shit, the other <laughs> shocking stuff perhaps is not as compelling. Yeah. Um, and so I wasn't, I, I really liked the animation that like revealed it. Uh-huh. Like I thought it was cool to watch, but I did not find the eventual thing to be particularly shocking, especially since it's just like another run at the trolls. Right. Right. Well, like, it's like it's it's trolls plus exiles. Right. Right. That's sort of the logic that uh, you you can find here. Right. Especially when we get like the later context where Rose explains, like, for some reason, Skya sent uh, two of the kids into the future. Uh, and it basically timeline line timeline wise works out that they are in the exact same point in Earth's history where the exiles were back in uh, Acts one through five. Mm -hmm. So uh, there. There is this, like, strange way in which, uh, I don't know, like, everything has changed so that everything can stay the same. Yeah. Uh, and this is also kind of important historical context. This is one of the big plot twists uh, that was called months ago. Uh, like, hmm. it, it was put together, like, pretty, pretty soundly. The theory, like, all the evidence was marshaled uh, on Tumblr. By a poster named, uh, well, that went by the handle uh, Dog's Body. Um, and so this was like a thing that uh, about uh, maybe three or four months ago at this point, maybe historically, uh, this was going around Tumblr. People are like, hey, what do you think of this theory that uh, uh, Roxy and Dirk are in the future? Um, and so when it is finally revealed that that is the case... Uh, historically in the thread, the reaction is like, whoa, I can't believe that that plot twist was called. Um, you know, I can't wait to see what happens next. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think, you know, one of the one of the ways that Homestuck maybe does suffer as an archive is that there is or was this sense of just wondering what was going to happen next, right? Novelty in kind of its purest form. Uh, as opposed to novel novelty within, you know, the static object of a narrative. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, and that's, you know, the, the, the whole thing about the anticipation of that twist, I think, really uh, formatted how people responded to it actually being revealed. In the sense that it was, like, so pre-mediated pre on the platform? Yeah, like not not in, in this way, it was almost like, um, especially, you know, in the something awful thread, it was like, I can't believe someone called it. I see. I right. See. The, like Homestuck is suddenly a thing that can be called. <laughs> that's it's so fascinating to hear that that's like like a transformation in the fan base, because I mean, what we know, right, like archivally, mm -hmm. what we know is it's always being called. Yes. Right. Because part of what is called, quote unquote, is just things ripped out of what fans are saying. Right. <laughs> and so, la di da, right? Like, of <laughs> course it's called. It's a, that's a fascinating thing. Well, but also, right, like millions more people are viewing it, right? I mean, not maybe not literally millions, but like a huge number more people are engaging with this thing now, right? Yeah, let me double check something here. Um, I believe it's during this reading that I got these numbers. So apparently uh, 1.7 million people uh, tried to access Cascade within the first, like, two days. Okay. Well, or people, or 1.7, there were 1.7 million attempts to yes. access. Right, right, attempts to access. Yeah, what I have written Got here it. is hits, yeah. Got it, right. So that could be, you know, teenagers clicking 85 times each. <laughs> you know, it's hard to get hard numbers out of that, but um, that's still a huge number of people. 
Yeah. Uh, in a uh, Tumblr answer at one point, I, also in this reading, uh, Hussey says that, uh, well, someone asks, you know, was there ever a point where you thought I should just stop this Homestuck thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hussey says, really, the only time I seriously thought that was when it looked like it was going to cost me $100,000 to host Cascade. Oh, so apparently that's how like that's how much the hosting situation was or rather like that was the most dire outcome of the hosting situation there. Uh-huh. Yeah. Jesus. Mhm. And like by just you know for the next part episode, uh not a huge detail but it's like a a little bit of material history to note. Uh by the next part episode, uh the website is crashing again. <laughs> Like, there are enough people accessing during Flash updates that uh, the the website's starting to have trouble. Well, lordy, Mm -hmm. you know, it sounds like it's hard. It's hard being hussy. (laughs) Kind of sounds like it's hard running a website that... It sounds like it. Golly. Everyone's into. Uh, But otherwise, yeah, people people are kind of... They think it's really cool that this uh, reveal about Roxy and Dirk being in the future has happened. And I think the other thing to note about how that revelation lands um, is that for the people who are reading live, it becomes another chance to go back and start rereading and being like, oh, this is why Roxy is like blah. This is why Dirk said blah at this other point in time. Do you know what I mean? It's precisely Mm -hmm. what we've talked about with uh, here's this new piece of information. Now go back and like discover all the things that you think are like uh, uh, foreshadowings of it. Yeah, of course. I mean, and that's like, you know, the mechanism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that 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 is the the thing i mean i guess what what is fascinating you know i i uh you know goofing a little bit before nothing happened obviously stuff occurs but i guess what's what is so interesting about the comic at this point is that there, there's n- <laughs> there are no new worlds right like <laughs> the like the meta the meta uh effect right the constantly expanding outward into a kind of meta discursive or meta constructive Space means that quite literally there's nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Like there's just the capability to reuse tricks, you know, or or gimmicks or whatever, right? I I I don't want to to like make them sound lesser than, but mm-hmm. I I have to be honest, I do kind of feel like they're lesser than. Uh like I don't think that these these like tricks or whatever, like the oh, they're back in time and even some of the stuff that happens in the next part episode. Like I don't think they add much to the thing other than like fucking with the fans, right? Mm-hmm. To be like, hey, did you know blah 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 blah? <laughs> um it's really fascinating to me that this the reading for this really oscillated for this part of said really oscillates heavily between like deep character development as if nothing around the characters matters, and then plot development in which none of the characters matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that happens on the back of this kind of like meta move, meta discursive transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, I it, it's fascinating. I you know I do also I guess I do like uh, uh, Lord English running around being a total <laughs> gremlin, <laughs> just showing up in Hussey's. I I do love uh, the confrontation between Hussey and Lord English. I think that's very funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I do too. It's great. But it, like you know, it's like this whole side story, right? That like. Mm-hmm. Kind of matters, I guess, and kind of doesn't. 
Um, mm-hmm. I Hussey throwing uh, Jack off that balcony. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> yes. I, I, have you noticed too that the way that the meta like uh, the lampshade hanging, for lack of a better term, of the meta move is changing? Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, so like the way that Hussey is uh, Hussey being like, uh, yes, this oh God, what's the name of the 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 uh, uh, okay half half man half half horse? What's that called? Arthur. No, but what is the ha- what's a half man half a horse called? Oh, a human animal. No, what's a uh, mythologically? Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. I think they're just called human animals. I think Andrew Hussey invented them. Ah, uh, okay. Well, that doesn't sound right to me, but. It's a centaur, Cameron. Oh, yeah, there we go. Okay, so Arthur, and he, but he's like this, you know, human animal that could be Arthur, mm-hmm. but, or maybe is not, blah, 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 and he just keeps talking, right? It's like, oh, all right, man, <laughs> it's getting a little too cute. And I didn't know, I, you know, if you told me six months ago that I would be sitting here saying, I think something now got too cute, <laughs> 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 right? That I would think there were the new places to get too cute. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wouldn't believe you for sure. Well, you want to talk about cute. Uh, so that moment where, uh, Hussey whips out Doc Scratch's, uh, Magnum and tries to shoot Lord English, but it only, uh, (laughs) uh, Scratch only loaded it with one bullet. And so Hussey throws the, the gun at Lord English's face Mm -hmm. and we get this gif of like the gun just like slowly moving towards space and just bonking Lord English in the face and then falling. Um, that speaking of too cute, uh, in Problem Sleuth, do you remember that when Problem Sleuth ran out of bullets, he threw his gun into Demon Head Mobster Kingpin's face, and in mm-hmm. doing so, the gun turned into a key and unlocked the like metal mask that uh, Demon Head Mobster Kingpin was using to uh, protect his his like true face or whatever, uh, and then they got to start the actual final JRPG battle. In the Problem Sleuth books, in the author commentary, uh, Hussey has a note about that scene, which is, uh, this is probably the only time that throwing an unloaded gun at a boss's face is uh, going to do anything productive. Uh-huh. So, and that was published, uh, I'm pretty sure, before this update. Great. So that was just like, that appears to have just been a joke that Hussey wanted to, to work in, <laughs> of throwing an empty gun at someone's face. Look, sometimes you got to make a thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and sometimes you got to do it in a particular kind of way. Uh <laughs> Yeah, I don't uh but but uh, yeah, I actually I similarly I really like that whole uh segment with and also that just Jack can't stop stabbing. Yes. That's his one thing. <laughs> it, it's very good. Um So yeah, and that's that's kind of what's happening there right hussy's hussy's dead uh now wandering around the dream bubbles apparently and proposed to Vriska, uh which yeah. i thought was interesting historically because uh you know i'm always interested in these meta moves and as you say uh the meta moves feel kind of exhausted here and that was a feeling that i was having uh historically too that like uh they weren't ex- uh, uh expanding out anymore it seemed like everything was kind of like uh, you know, corralled. And so I didn't really know where I mean, we're going to find out, but I didn't have any idea where like Hussey being in the dream bubbles could or would go. But it seemed to me and I thought this was kind of amusing 
Uh, it's like, oh, yeah, the author's dead. Uh, and now he's running around in the dream bubbles, i.e. the fandom and just like doing the things that fans were always uh, insisting, which is that people were like, you know, Hussey only gives Vriska uh, like so much screen time because he's in love with the character, right? That she's mm-hmm. like his his ideal woman. Um, and so this becomes like that little moment becomes like uh, uh, throwing that joke back at the fan base by, you know, ironically incorporating it into the fiction. Yeah, that's how I definitely took it. Like, oh, oh, you think I'm in love with Riska? Why don't I just marry Riska then? <laughs> don't you think if I were in love with Riska, I would marry Riska? <laughs> Canonically in the comic book. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, it's a little. Yeah, it's a little much. Mm-hmm. Andrew Hussey. Uh, real, real anticlimax to actually having your author get killed. But, you know, that's Homestuck. Uh, uh, the <laughs> other thing then, I, I think it's interesting that you put it that, um, this, the, the comic now wants you to be, uh, simultaneously all in on these character relationships, even though it feels like disconnected from the plot and also be entirely into the plot, even though it's disconnected from the character relationships, right? There's that kind of weird divide, uh, that you're sensing. Um, uh, is that you think because, well, the question I guess uh, I have is like, is that kind of like a formal problem or not even necessarily a problem, but like a consequence where so much character stuff happens in these long, long text uh, dialogues versus like characters moving around and getting uh, context about the world that they live in or like what? I don't know. I, that's a good question. I mean, plot wise, uh, the, the w- everything's in like a weird stable state right now. And so maybe that's like part of it, right? So like the the pre-game characters for what we read here, they can't they couldn't really go into the game yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though there's like this like po- politicking assassination blah 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 all that going on, right? It's not really the same thing as like being a superhero flying around and doing stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um so like they're in a place where they can really only talk. Right. Um and and I think it is notable that like the most interesting plotty plot sections that happen to me are when we cut to the midnight crew and they're <laughs> doing all their goofery, right? Like right. that seems important. Um and then on the other side, then you just have all these kids flying around on this boat on Fanfic Island, right? Like <laughs> and those are fun too. Like those are interesting little sections, but like nothing happens. Right. Uh, you know, it's just like, Oh, it's fanfic Island and they're all meeting each other and chatting it up. And mm-hmm. you know, uh, the mayor and Dave are best friends. Yeah. I'm so glad we get to call him the mayor now. Thank God. It's been so hard having to go back to calling him WV literally from the beginning of this show to now. <laughs> been a big problem for you. It's really hard. Like just calling him the mayor, uh, is so natural and good. Well, uh, I'm the mayor. <laughs> uh, listeners to the other show will know that I'm the mayor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the uh, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I you know I don't know. If, does that fit into what you just said? Um, you know, just just because my my vibe here is it's that it's a uh emanation or like an unhealthy consequence of like the the state of the characters just because the mm-hmm. characters can't move much they can't mm-hmm. really do all that much right now um hmm. i think maybe you're right um because and this is this is something that we couldn't have known as uh serial readers but 
can know, right, is kind of like knowledge we can exercise as archival readers, uh, which is that the plot is kind of being held in place, right? We, we like the everything up until this point has been about establishing sort of this new world uh, and uh, putting into place all of these pieces that are going to be moving around and kind of like the back forth of the comic or something like that. Uh, and, uh, like we, we basically, we have, we have yet to really hit the kickoff moment for act six. Like the runway that is being laid here is quite, quite long. And, uh, I guess that's one of the benefits of making a web comic in this time period and already having a huge audience. You can just kind of, uh, take some leisurely time and do all this setup. Uh, have extremely long philosophical discussions between your characters where they try to work through like what it means to be a person when you're constantly surrounded by alternate versions of your dead self uh which the uh thread for instance and I know for a fa- for an, uh I know for a fact the fandom right in, in kind of a general sense gets really into not in like a like oh this is cool like let's just have Carcat talk about this forever uh but uh this gets picked up as kind of like means for existential speculation among readers, right? The, like the the things that people are getting out of this, uh, it's no longer just kind of like plot and character. Uh, people are now kind of drawing uh, philosophical speculation out of the text and sort of thinking about like, you know, what what would it mean if this was how reality worked? Uh, not necessarily for themselves, but just kind of like working through all of the implications of it. Um, well, you know, it, it's hard to know. There, there's something really weird that happens with this comic, which is that Hussey is so good at sometimes at like dialing in to exactly teen feelings, you know, like mm-hmm. hashtag teen feelings. And, uh, and it's hard to know, right? Because like on one hand, these ideas are, are very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and we already had a hefty dose of it earlier with like Dave being so concerned about all the dead Daves and all that yes. stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is this. Unfortunately, I think this is also just a rerun of of an idea that we already had that mm-hmm. worked. Um, but but the other part of it being like, I these are things that like reading The Stranger when you're a teenager really bring <laughs> up, right? Yeah. Or like reading. Um, you know, neuromancer at this age, right? Of like, what if you could, not this exact thing, but like, what if you could experience all the exact thoughts and feelings of a human being or right. another person? What would it make you, right? Because mm-hmm. that's this kind of, uh, you know, when you read neuromancer with young readers, that's a big thing that comes up is the sim stem scene and all that kind of stuff. What would it be like to have a body that was not my body, all that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I, you know, I do think that that something fascinating about this is like, this is, to me, this kind of run of like basic existential issues, and I don't say basic in a negative sense, but just like, what does it mean to be me? And what would it mean to exist in a metaphysical system in which I could see all the alternate me's? I think that's a very like intro to philosophy kind of question that that is an mm-hmm. intro to philosophy question because it is so fundamental and important, right? Mm-hmm. Like once you understand yourself as a output of a plurality of potential use, right? Which is mm-hmm. like, True, right? Like any given event in your life could have gone differently. That is like a hard existential problem, right? Like, right. am I me or am I the output of externalities? And, right. And, you know, that that's like a thing that really hits people hard because it is an important thing to think through. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but so so you know those kinds of things they are the kind of thoughts and feelings of like a 16 17 year old who's geared into those questions right so mm-hmm. what it's fascinating to me that what's happened in some sense is with the complexification of the philosophy here or the more i guess um direct look at the philosophy side of it uh, you know putting that solely in the middle of discussions that that is just another ya a slightly different spin on the ya literary experience um mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it folds right into all the rest of this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, what what if you were in the Hunger Games, but also, uh, you know, you read Camus? <laughs> right, right. And what if you routed all of that through the apparatus of fandom? Right. Right, because that's sort of what's happening here is that, like, the ways that the fandom treats the characters become this kind of, like, weird, uh, uh, like, shadow show for having the characters then reflect on these issues as like philosophical uh uh you know problems right um like so there there's also like these embedded questions of like what are you doing when you take these characters and like spin out alternate versions of them right what would what would happen if uh, the characters of the thing that you're a fan of could see the AU that you made, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Like uh, getting you to sort of like think about these problems, uh, not just through kind of your own life necessarily, but like through the perspective of a fictional character who might be experiencing these things that you may or may not be responsible for. Well, Michael, you know, uh, we must uh, imagine Vriska is regretful. <laughs> I guess we do. Uh, we must. We must. We must. It's in the phrase. Otherwise, no, she, I... otherwise, she's just wandering around the desert seeing the uh, weird oracle from the never-ending story and uh, getting proposed to. Oh, that's true. That is the oracle from the never-ending story. Yeah, except uh, uh, instead of the sphinxes, it has uh, two, two big uh, 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 spurb crocodiles. Right. <laughs> The uh, but yeah so I there there's something interesting going on here and I think we'll probably be talking about it. Well, I don't know. My based on what you just said a minute ago, my assumption is that the on ramp for anything that matters here is really long mm-hmm. because the one thing I know about X six is that number one, everyone stopped reading during it, <laughs> uh, and and number two, um, it uh, it's half of the comic. <laughs> like, those are the only <laughs> things I know. So based on that, I would say it's going to be a while before things start mattering. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we gotta get Lord English over here. Yeah, into this universe, we got to get. Uh, we gotta like recreate a bunch of other shit. <laughs> well, and we've gotta uh, also take some time to uh, have to acknowledge that there are people who don't like how this comic is going, and to pull them into the story as well, so that they can talk too about how much uh, they hate how long everything is taking. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do we want to talk about these ooh ooh and ooh ooh? Yeah, I mean uh, that that was kind of my gesture. If you if you want mm-hmm. to talk about them, yeah. Um, obviously, uh, this parallels something that I've talked about before. That there is this like emerging kind of trope or figure in the fandom of, uh, like the the two divided or or opposed people. Um, this starts as kind of, you know, a live blog thing. And I should also say that live blogs for Homestuck are only gaining in popularity at this point, right? They're really picking up. Um, What's uh, a live blog, Michael? 
they are just to refresh uh people who are just reading through people who are like hey so everyone on Tumblr, they're tumblers right this is very much a tumblr thing hey everyone on this website is talking about homestuck I don't know what Homestuck is, so I'm going to try to read Homestuck, and I'm going to blog about my experience reading Homestuck here on this Tumblr. And because uh, everyone is really into Homestuck, and everyone who is into Homestuck is really obnoxious, I'm going to kind of complain about the whole thing. Uh, That's sometimes. Sometimes it's a person who's just like, well, I'm really interested in this Homestuck thing, so I guess I'm going to read it. Um, There's like a more reserved or sort of like softer approach. Um... Uh, that uh, usually has some, like, they have someone who's, like, their friend who's already into Homestuck, who they, like, report to and they, like, post chat logs as uh, they're reacting to things. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one version. Uh, and then there's the other version, which is the hate blog, which is the person who just is reading through Homestuck to nitpick it, uh, to talk about how much it sucks, to try to constantly call plot twists, and then when those plot twists don't shake out, say that it's bad writing. Uh, there's one in particular who, uh, shows up, uh, who gets talked about a lot in the Something Awful thread, uh, uh, who is extremely misogynistic. Like, every time a female character shows up, he complains, he calls them, you know, uh, uh, misogynist slurs, uh, wishes that they would die. Like, he, this guy really, really hates Rose. Uh, he hates having to read how much she talks. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he's just a, a really unpleasant and everyone in the something awful thread, of course, is like reading all of these blogs, right? Some of the nice ones, but also kind of focusing in on these negative ones. Um, and then they find out that this guy is like 15 years old. So uh, it's just like, it's just like this 15 year old kid, just like venting spleen, uh, really awful, horrible spleen. Uh, but like this, this becomes like a weird little cottage industry within the fandom of having these homestuck live blogs, both positive and negative. Uh, and then suddenly we have these two characters, not really suddenly, cause we've had a, a big U since the beginning. And for the record, mm-hmm. I'm calling her big U because her typing quirk is all lowercase except for her U's, which are uppercase. Uh, and then little U is little U because he types in all uppercase, but his U's are lowercase. Some sort of opposite world. <laughs> well, well, some sort of like a uh, weird uh, dualist pairing, right? Of like the uh, big you being like cheery and bright and making fan art and like wanting to talk the characters and like give them give them cute little hints about things that are going to happen. And then we have little you who uh, only at this point, like we get a, a brief mention here. He only talks to Dirk. Dirk is the mm-hmm. only person that he likes, really, uh, because Dirk has, quote, ambition, uh, because otherwise he cannot stand uh, how slowly everything moves and how much these characters talk to each other. And he just wants them to get the fuck on with it and actually make the plot go. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, my God. Right. Like the 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 comic like folds back in the 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 fan reaction so this is you know one of the directions the meta stuff uh goes um it doesn't like continue sort of moving outward it like takes the the kind of broad strokes fan reaction and it's just like so here are some characters who are that and yep. it's weird <laughs> i mean weird and cool i think but uh well i don't know i mean for the most part i this can only go in a bad place. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like in the sense of like, this can only end up 
with the comic directly <laughs> murdering one of these characters or <laughs> making them the villain or you know what I mean like there's mm-hmm. no universe in which this cannot be um a bad time for somebody yeah it's like when I like made my webcomic and I made uh uh pays too much attention Michael Mm-hmm. And uh, and I shot him into the void of space <laughs> halfway through because he was paying too much attention. You know, I, that seems, uh, you know, when you fl- f- flew right by Yorick's skull. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> I don't know how historical Michael would feel about that, but it seems not cool to me. Well, uh, it just, it just I'm, I mean, I'm joking, but it seems like... Uh, it's something we talked about in the Gary Allen Fine <laughs> episode <laughs> of Game Study Study Buddies, right? Like, if you solve uh, table problems within the game, you're just going to create a bad time. You're kicking mm-hmm. the can down the road. Yeah. You, you are not resolving an actual social issue. And that's all I'm going to say about it. Well, uh, we'll have more to talk about, I guess, because the comic <laughs> ain't done yet. Oh, of course not. Um, and uh, it's a it's interesting that you point this out because in the something awful thread, one of the uh, conversations that emerges uh, is people who basically think little you has some points, and they're like, "Oh, this guy actually like he's obviously a, a, a huge tool and a piece of shit," but like, yeah, like I have noticed uh, this comic is getting really talky and the plot's not really moving, and I, I kind of agree with him here. And then there are other people who are coming in and being like, I, you know, someone has a post where there's like, I can't believe that there are uh, people here who are like uh, uh, sympathetic with this character. Like that is so horrible. Like he's so obviously awful, Um, you know, pointing back here to uh, all of the uh, Lauren Berlant that I quoted in Cascade um, and talking about uh, uh, sort of like, you know, the the formation of intimate publics, uh, this idea Mm -hmm. that. Uh, what what is unifying uh, people together? And of course, Berlant is speaking uh, very specifically about the formation of kind of like commercial melodrama as uh, an industry in 19th and early 20th century United States. And right, this is a very gendered thing for Berlant. Um, well, not just for Berlant, but like historically, right? Like this is a genre that is kind of being formulated uh, uh, for women to both produce and consume. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, one of the things that Berlant says is that melodrama, uh, as, as this genre, as a, a genre of fiction that relies uh, kind of first and foremost on affect, on feeling, right? People are feeling creatures first and foremost, and women are taken to be kind of like, you know, the the feeling human par excellence, right? Um, uh, in, in kind of the, the logic of uh, late 19th, early 20th century United States. Um so uh, uh, the the appeal of melodrama, as Berlant understands it, is that uh, everyone comes together into kind of like the, the commercial fiction marketplace of melodrama, uh, sort of uh, ready to be united together by the fact that they, they feel similarly, right? We are all sentimental people, right? We have similar affects or similar uh, uh, feelings, similar hurts, similar disappointments, very much uh, for Berlant again in, in that book, which is The Female Complaint, The Unfinished Business of Sentimentality sentimentality in American culture. Um, This is about sort of the frustrations of the marriage plot. On the one level, women are in this unenviable social position of basically like, you know, your life is determined by how well you like grow up and get married to some guy. 
Um, and there is like a, a desire for maybe something other than that or something a part of that, uh, uh, outside of that. And Berlant says, nevertheless, uh, melodramas as kind of a genre are constantly recycling the marriage plot and trying to work through the ways, like how could the marriage plot work in a way that empowers women, uh, and nevertheless also disclosing the ways in which like the system of, of, uh, gender and marriage, like is, is specifically designed to like disappoint and disempower women right there's there's all these like weird effective tensions so this is all to say uh that uh, a melodrama for Berlant is kind of this field of production, generic fiction production, uh, where people are sort of first and foremost unified by affect or sentiment. And part of the work then of uh, forming this intimate public is like parsing through who feels what and how, how do we feel similarly or not. And uh, now with Homestuck, we are starting to see like or like Homestuck is trying to shift its regime of feeling, right? Or rather, it's like surfacing parts of it that are actually causing like confrontations or discussions within the fans, within the readers. Because if fandom, which I've taken as kind of a you know uh, an outgrowth of the intimate public as Berlant uh, describes it, um, if fandom is similarly kind of this space where we all connect first and foremost by like an affinity of feeling, right? By the fact that we're all kind of like uh, uh, always already like put to like uh, put into positions where we have to feel similarly to one another or that we want to feel similarly to one another. Um, here we see those discussions and we've been seeing them throughout the whole thing regarding Vriska and so on. Uh, you could feel that way about this character, but I don't feel about this character. So uh, uh, you see kind of these fractions uh, uh, in the fandom of like, uh, you know, and, and this is like because of the the weird structural position that Little U occupies as the most uh, concentrated representative of the bad fan that we've seen thus far, uh, we get really clear kind of debates or discussions about like, well, what does it mean for you if you think that Little U has some points? Right. Like, I can't believe that you would feel that way. I just I can't believe you would even be reading Homestuck. Right. You and I must be reading two right. different comics. Well, it's an interesting way too. I just hearing you kind of do all this right. That the additional layer to this, right, is that melodrama as a system. Right. We've talked about this before. You know, it, it, it's almost a distinct genre. The sentimental novel is a distinct genre. Um, and then as cinema comes around and melodrama gets folded into that, you know, melodramas are a particular thing in cinema for a certain amount of time. But at this point, right, like many genres, it is hybridized. And so like melodrama is everywhere in the same mm -hmm. way that science fiction is everywhere. Right. Um, I've talked about this before, you know, but Farrah Mendelssohn says that science fiction is not a genre. It's a mode. Mm -hmm. Right. It's a way that in melodrama, I think, is a mode. You know, it's a thing that that um, all works at this point uh, move in and out of because it's just such a primary way that we understand media relations. Um, the additional lever behind that, right, is that like the sentimental novel um, in, in melodrama at the time that Berlant is writing about and that you're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it's a genre at that point, meaning that like lots of people with lots of different purposes are engaging with it. Right. And so mm -hmm. the general effect of the market of reading, right, for the reading public is that you're engaging with lots of different people kind of working with a similar tool set, which is the genre of the melodrama. What's fascinating and different to me about Homestuck, or not different in the sense of like, oh, it's beyond the pale, but like the complication that's added here is that you have a creator who is weaponizing these things uh -huh. um, 
in order to aim fans at one another. Uh-huh. Um, it is it is specifically being used this kind of uh, connectivity by saying types of fans are represented as this character. You are then having people aim their <laughs> their water cannon of of fandom mechanism, right? The thing that makes us say this character is better than this character or this character deserves to have more time than this other character or it's unfair that this is being happened to my favorite character. You're encouraging people to aim that at one another. Mm-hmm. Um like directly. Mm-hmm. That you know, you know and uh, that that to me seems to be like that's a step beyond anything that, that has been in this comic so far, right? I just, I can't think of a time where the comic was like, and Vriska fans are evil. Right. <laughs> right, but now, like, because fans could have done that, right? If mm-hmm. you think that Vriska, you know, uh, in doing all these awful things um, is free of uh, blame, then I think that's being a bad fan, right? Like, I imagine that's happening constantly, right? And, right. like, the debates around Vriska even... At this point, you can see those kinds of things showing up, right? That's a little bit different than, like, then, you know, making a little container for that kind of, of interaction to go into and then saying that container sucks. Mm-hmm. Um, that that seems to be, like, just a whole different maneuver. Yeah. It is, I mean, I, this is another point, Act 6, where I maybe would have stopped reading Homestuck. Uh, as I said, the, the meta moves do feel like the things that sort of kept me interested seem like they're kind of losing steam or whatever. And yet it is precisely what you just said, like what were kind of the obvious consequences of this move of like, you know, uh, uh, the thing, the thing that is distinctive about Vriska is that she is just first and foremost, like a character in the fiction, uh, right? She does not come into being sort of representing a type of reader. Uh, as I said, mm-hmm. back during sort of like the big Vriska discussions uh, during our Act 5 uh, partisodes, um, if anything, uh, Vriska makes the reader more like her in that if you are like uh, if you like Vriska, then Vriska teaches you how to defend Vriska and troll people, which is just to constantly, like, make excuses for her or find ways to, like, argue around, like, the obvious bad shit that she did to be like, but here's how it worked out well. Right? That's what yeah, Vriska- or, or to uh, Or the melodrama angle, right? Of, like, deep inside of her, she feels a feeling and has has undergone a development that is deeply important. Right. And... And if you are ignoring that to criticize her, like, fictional character behavior, then you are incomplete, right? It, it allows for, like, um, archival mastery, right, or database mastery to trump reaction, mm-hmm. uh, which is, like, a really, a, you know, ri- if you're a writer who's deeply engaged in fandom, that's a smart maneuver to do, to be like, well, any defender can always say, uh, of Vriska in particular, and I have no, please do not, uh, <laughs> Tell me your your thoughts or feelings on Riska. I think they're probably really interesting, but I think Riska is perfectly cool and interesting fictional character. Like I, this is not me coming after anyone. Please don't take it that way. But but there's something fascinating in the writing of Riska where Hussey gave everyone the tools to make any argument they could want to make about Riska, right. um, and not like implicitly in the way that might happen if we we're talking about I don't know Jack Torrance from The Shining, right? Like, mm-hmm. within that, there's enough ambiguity in The Shining that you can kind of say whatever you want to say about Jack, right? Right. But that that's not what happens with Vriska, right? There's a, there's a significant difference here. In Vriska, you are given the words to say, <laughs> yes. right? Like, 
you were not given the 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 phenomena to then interpret. You were given the exact words that you need to say in order to defend whatever. So really, what you get to read when you hear Vriska defending her own actions within the context of of the comic is you get to uh, a mimetic set of things to repeat in order to defend those actions to your fa- your friends or fans. Right. Like it's a different thing. Right. Right. Different from a uh, little you who comes into being and is, you know, legible uh, just off the bat immediately as precisely a kind of stylization of the hate reader that I just Mm -hmm. described, right? Because he uh, is impatient with everything. He thinks people talk too much. He is not interested in the melodrama where the melodrama is like all of these emotions being uh, put forth and processed and talked over, right? Uh, He is... uh, He's going to get more like this. Uh, We haven't seen the worst of it yet, Uh, but he's misogynist, right? He doesn't care Mm -hmm. for uh, the female characters very in particular uh, and only wants to talk to Dirk, who interestingly, uh, we mentioned, was a a kind of another author character, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. A a variation on like the hussy self-insert. And of course, he introduces himself, little you that does, with, you know, hello, Dirk, I want to play a game. Uh, And Dirk is like, oh, I just thought you were going to ask me to draw more weird pornography. All of this being a callback way, way back to uh, whatever part of Sode where this was discussed. But um, the thing on Hussey's forum that happened, I believe, during the run of Problem Sleuth, where someone uh, posing as Jigsaw from the Saw movies shows up and demands that people draw him like Muppet Babies pornography. Uh, right, which of course also got brought into Homestuck itself. Uh, one right. of the comics that Hussey produced for that is the one that uh, uh, Bro leaves for Dave way back in, I think, Act Two or Act Three. Uh, I would like to not play a game, please. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, listener. I would like to record an ad break. And I'm going to do it. All right. All yeah. right. Here we go. Ad break. break. Uh, Thank you so much for listening to Homestuck Made This World, which is the show that you're listening to right now, in case you somehow missed that. Uh, uh, Homestuck Made This World is part of the Range Touch Network, uh, where we do all sorts of different shows about, like, popular culture, gaming, media properties, uh, weird stuff uh, that uh, we highly encourage you to check out if if uh, this is the only thing of ours that you listen to. Um, we are totally self-supported through our Patreon, patreon.com slash range touch, and uh, these are the ads that we that we do for ourselves. That That's kind of it. Uh, the other shows that we do that you might want to check out are Just King Things, where we read through the books of Stephen King in publication order and do a whole lot of uh, sort of historical and cultural contextualization, much like this show. Um, But we also have Too Much Future, where Cameron and I play through the Fallout games, uh, talk through them and kind of critique them. And then Cameron and Danny do Mages and Murder Dads, uh, which is a similar kind of show, but working through the games in the Baldur's Gate lineage. So not just Baldur's Gate uh, itself or 
themselves since there are multiple games, but uh, branching outward most recently into Disco Elysium and Icewind Dale. Uh, Cameron and I also do the show Game Study Study Buddies, where we read through books of academic game studies and uh, try to make them, you know, sort of accessible to a general audience to people who maybe don't have uh, uh, the time or kind of like background that would be necessary to dig into who Leotard is or something like that. Uh, try to be helpful, informative, and fun on patreon.com slash range touch, where we produce all sorts of bonus content. Uh, there are just King Things bonus episodes. There are notes from Game Study Study Buddies, but there are also bonus episodes of Homestuck Made This World. Uh, most recently, the last one we did uh, was on the fan adventure Prom Stuck. I think we both had a really uh, interesting conversation about that. Um, and now I get to reveal to you uh, here in this ad break that that at the end of this month, our next bonus ode will be Cameron and I discussing the classic 2004 horror film, Saw. So if you want to hear our thoughts on these uh, after we've seen Saw, so to speak, uh, then head on over to patreon.com slash range touch and uh, kick us a couple dollars a month, whatever whatever tier floats your boat and help us continue to make cool stuff um, and continue to listen, continue to tell your friends about us. And if you feel so moved, please go to your podcast rating platform of choice, uh, give us five stars, and uh, tell everyone that they should be listening to us. If you do this on Apple Podcasts, uh, leave a five-star review that is also funny, then there's a chance that Cameron on air will read your review, which I will turn over to him now. This is from the real Laszlo Krasnohorkai. Five stars. I thought this was going to be a fan cast of Otessa Moshfeg's Homesick for Another World. Now I've been cursed by a wizard and cannot stop listening. Still pretty good, though. Five stars. <laughs> Very great. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, do that. Um, you don't have to get trapped by a wizard or cursed or whatever, but maybe it helps. Maybe that'll that'll help you with uh, reading some review, getting your review read uh, as long as it's funny. Trapped by a wizard in a funny way. If it's in a sad way, mm, probably not going to read your review. Uh, otherwise, uh, unless you have any other words of wisdom for us, Cameron. Honk. <laughs> then back to the episode. Uh, so, yeah, like, the, this is, as you say, like, it, it, it's very clearly Hussey kind of, like, outlining a type of person who, uh, they don't think is pleasant and they don't maybe... Like, well, that's, I guess, the question, right? Like, I mean, clearly, like, they, this person is unpleasant, but it's like, what is kind of the aim of uh, drawing so clear a bead on these two character types, right? Uh, the fangirl who uh, uh, is just kind of supportive of everything, wants to speculate and theorize and write fanfic and make fan art, um versus uh, uh, the the opposite of that, right? The fanboy who hates everything, says he hates everything, and yet still c keeps coming back for more and also uses the the uh, the fiction as kind of this weird sounding board for his uh, most retrograde, like, thoughts and opinions. Like, mm -hmm. uh, so this is what keeps me kind of, like, tagging along with Homestuck for now, where I'm just like, like, wh where where could this possibly go that does not end very badly. Yeah. Right? Not in a sense of like, oh, that's a disappointing ending to the story, but like, uh, Hussey's playing with fire, it feels like. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a great way to put it. Because yeah, there's just no, it's a, it's a, a notch that when you 
I don't know. It's just like, I mean, this is like maybe not a web comic-y thing, but certainly like a, uh, like a literary phenomenon, right? Where you like, you know, you put your worst critic in the thing. Mm-hmm. God, what is the movie in which, uh, uh, oh, it's the mayor of New York in Independence Day. That's Roger Ebert, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, oh uh, no, it's uh, in Godzilla. God, in, in the nineteen ninety eight oh. Godzilla, uh, the mayor of New York is is like a here. I'll send you the. I'll, let me send you a uh, photograph here. Well, it's not a photograph, but uh, an image. <laughs> Of the comparison. So it's Siskel and Ebert. Uh, there's lookalikes, and it's like <laughs> the mayor and his aide uh, in the thing, right? Oh but you know God. what I mean? Like, there's something uh, of that caliber about it, right? Of like, uh, like mm-hmm. this this can be fun and funny in a particular way. It, but uh, like Godzilla 1998, I don't think had like a million fans who were like deeply invested in like uh, identifying all the characters and what they were doing and then like contacting them in real life. Um, you know, I don't know. It mm-hmm. feels like I guess what I'm saying is that the insert character, the representation of the critic you don't like in one medium has a different effect than another medium. Mm hmm. Then, well, and I think it makes a huge difference whether or not that's kind of like a, a sort of like, you know, side gag that shows up once or twice throughout the course of the film versus like <laughs> a character who shows up to talk a whole lot and like uh, uh seems like maybe he's going to be a little critical to the way things work moving right. forward, considering uh, how things are, are, right, are right, developing. Right. But um, yeah, so anyway. I mean, it is funny to be like to have the, the feelings of you, you, and then have you, you show up. Like that is funny, <laughs> little you. Sorry, otherwise it's yeah. not going to be uh, <laughs> super helpful. Um, uh, sorry, I'm I'm paging through some notes here. Yeah. So this is a, a I don't know how this really stands in the fandom. I know that I've read uh. uh I, in some of the like post ending stuff that I've read uh, from Homestuck, like this term seems to have fallen out. So I imagine maybe some discussion was had about it, or at least people became aware. Uh, but the word that um, uh, little you uses uh, to describe uh, little Cal is juju, uh, J U J U, uh, which is an actual like it, it derives from French, but it's uh, uh, in the, in that spelling, it is an actual term used in uh, West African religious practices and folk magic. Um, and, uh, it is kind of like what, uh, the problem that we had with the voodoo doll back during the felt intermission, where it's just like these things become, uh, uh, popular tropes within like, uh, uh, fiction, right. Particularly like pulp fiction. Uh, and the, they get worked out of their actual context to just be made like something weird and, and magical and, and kind of maybe spooky or scary. And, uh, Obviously, I think the the thing that really uh, drew Hussey in here was the fact that we get two U's in that word. Um, just just can't leave it down. Like, gotta have this word with two U's. Like, oh, what beautiful serendipity. Let's fold that in. Mm. Uh, but nevertheless, like, it ends up being appropriative. And it's not something that I, I don't want to end up saying that word a million times over the rest of this show. Because they're going to talk about these things a whole lot. So I'm just going to call them magical MacGuffins. Sure. Uh, because that's what they are. <laughs> 
they're plot devices right. that uh, get to do special things because they're magic. Great. But we haven't seen them do anything magic yet. Well, I mean, we've seen uh, Lil Cal apparently uh, cause himself to exist. Oh, I guess that's true. Oh, I did that too, though. My guess that is true. Yeah, I did. I uh, didn't. We all right? Like uh, just by imagining <laughs> myself with within the world, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, I there's like some. Uh, I'm just a little genie in a bottle here. <laughs> Got to rub me the right way, honey. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. uh, this is what Descartes was talking about, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, so I, I've looked at my notes. Let me tell you, on 46.12, okay. when Roxy is standing in front of this transmaterializer that clearly can move things yeah. back and forth, yeah. you would not believe the amount of sheer panic that I experienced. <laughs> Why is that? Because the level of complexity just goes up, like, unbelievably. Yeah. I naively, like a fool... Like a clown, like a little honk, honk, beep, beep, riding around in a little tiny car. I thought, new universe, don't have to deal with any of that other stuff. Don't have to think about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Wipe away the debt, I thought. Uh-huh. Nope. I'm wrong. <laughs> now you just have to keep up with two different universes and everything that's true in all of them at any given moment. <laughs> Well, the level of complexity um, is just astonishing for dot, <laughs> dot, dot, question mark outcome. Yeah. I mean, I, really, I mean, this move to me really does feel like um, now, you know, every level of complexity that you add, depending on, uh, you know, how, how much faith you have in your audience, right? Either divides your audience in half or, um, uh, you know, exponentially divides it, right? Like, uh, Mm -hmm. and who knows? Square roots it, I guess, is an exponential divide. (laughs) Square roots your audience, right? Who knows whether that's true or not? But I just like, when I saw this, I was like, well, there are just going to be things I will not understand in this comic through the ending of it until Michael explains it to me. Because mm-hmm. I just won't know. And I am not, I just can't. I like don't have the time in my life, <laughs> like materially, to develop the amount of time that it takes to understand all the exact approximations. And even like when they send this cat back in time and like it, it creates Jasper Sprite eventually, uh-huh. right? I was like, well, that happened, I guess, right? Like the, uh, sure, right. okay, whatever, who cares? And we get it again later with another character, but. I'm just like, all right, sure. Well, you see, Cameron, this is actually extremely simple. I love it. Nothing I like more yeah. than that. So what happened, mm-hmm. right, just to walk this through, w- way back in the first universe, Act 1 through, you know, Act 5, yep. uh, Rose, when she was little, had a little cat named Jaspers. Yep. Uh, uh, she loved Jaspers very much. One day, uh, Jaspers told her a secret, which turned out to be the word meow, which she wrote all over her walls unconsciously. And this was later uh, written in her diary. And then that diary was used to create Beck because this turned out to be all part of like, you know, the game's self-propagating bullshit. But anyway, after Jaspers did that, he suddenly disappeared. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was disappeared for a long time until suddenly he reappeared. Uh, not really a long, long time. It was, you know, like a month or a few weeks later or something. He reappeared dead. Yes. And then... Like on the beach or something. Uh, 
Yes, on the beach outside the house. Uh, he was discovered. Uh, little Rose was really sad. And Mom uh, had a funeral for him. A really elaborate funeral where she put him in a little sarcophagus inside the mausoleum behind the house. And then there was a, a secret tunnel beneath the mausoleum into the Skynet lab. Okay. Um, then when Rose entered the game, she took Jasper's uh, corpse, threw it into her kernel sprite, and made Jasper sprite. During that time where uh, Jasper's had disappeared, he disappeared because Roxy, over in this other universe, had been fucking around with this equipment in the lab beneath her house, uh, accidentally teleported Jasper's out, then Jasper's lived with her for years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, she renamed him Friglish, uh, and then Jasper's got killed. Uh, in an accident where she was trying to use the teleportate, Roxy was trying to use the teleportation technology uh, to convince Jane that she wasn't full of bullshit. We already saw this happen. Mm -hmm. The god cat showed up, uh, caused uh, the teleportation accident to kill Jaspers, and so now Roxy just sends the corpse back and completes what we've already seen happen. Right. Well, thank you. Now so, I don't know math. <laughs> I had to make room. I will say this, uh, it's fun to look at Jasper Sprite. <laughs> Jasper Sprite is a very good design, yeah. like a tentacle clown, or no, tentacle princess cat. When you really see it, like, it's this is on 4618, when you really start seeing all these characters together, it's uh -huh. good. <laughs> In what way? It's just like, everyone's goofy as hell looking. Yeah. <laughs> Like the 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 visual style of of Homestuck and just like I mean I love that on that page forty six eighteen like we've got Nana Sprite back there but I love that we also have uh, the iguanas and the uh, crocodile like wearing their wizard robes that are just the kids bed sheets because like that's a thing that's constantly happening in the background is all the consorts are like becoming wizard apprentices. Mm -hmm. It's uh, uh, it's good. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else do we have here. Uh, car cat getting suplexed, <laughs> but and, and so the, yeah. I mean this is part of the interesting. So car cat gets suplexed by Dave on forty seven twenty six. Never thought I'd mm -hmm. say those words in that order. <laughs> um, four six. Oh gosh, come on, this little little thing. All right, jump forty seven twenty six. All right, do 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 do. Did that not work? There we go. Uh, I mean, so this is like what's so interesting to me and like part of what I'm talking about in in terms of um, like plotty plot stuff is that like all of this entire interaction with Carcat and Dave, like uh -huh. it's funny, but it goes on for five times as long as the is any given joke goes on in it. You know what I mean? Like uh -huh. the, 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 the conceptual joke is really funny where it's like Carcat is here. To try to get you to do troll romance with him, right, right, and like, and he has an illustrated guide for you, which is just a romance novel, and like, right. that's funny. And also, I love the visual gag of the romance novel uh, on the cover. This is uh, <laughs> forty-seven twelve because they talk extensively about like what's happening, like imagistically. But the funny part mm -hmm. to me is the title <laughs> of it, which is infinitely long <laughs> because troll titles, you know, are, um, you know. 
they are full descriptions of everything that occurs. Um, right. And so it's, it's super small text of the title of the book. That to me is the funniest part of it. But like the like the scene just goes on infinitely forever. Yeah, right. And then the same mm-hmm. joke, like the struggling over the pin joke just keeps going and going. And there's so much text associated with it of these two characters just talking to one another. And like, I think that probably like if you're a fan of the comic and you like really like it and you like these characters, like this is great. Right. But it, it uh-huh. is interesting to have read Promstuck recently and then be talking about this because like, this is just what Promstuck is all about. Right. And presumably this yes. is what a lot of the fan fiction is about. It's just like, what if these characters ran into each other and started talking a lot? Yes, exactly. Right. That is the other thing that is so in the in the quote unquote main plot, right? The actual acts, we have all of these characters who are just constantly talking to each other about like sort of their interpersonal feelings and their melodrama, right? We have uh, you know, like the the big development there that we haven't touched on at all is that like Jane gets this opportunity to to be frank with Jake and then just like totally kaputs him, mm-hmm. right? Can't bring herself to articulate her feelings instead for whatever reason she kind of like uh, uh backs off and then ends up uh like uh very very angry at herself the entire time uh telling Jake that he should go for it with Dirk, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so we have that sort of happening like that is that is like in terms of what is going on in Jane's plot. Right. That is that is the meat of it. Um, And then here in the intermissions, uh, we have all of the old characters kind of hanging out and it becomes, yeah, fanfic zone where because there's no plot to like push them anywhere. Um, even, even less so, right, than in the case of Jane, where, you know, she can do whatever, like, needs to happen for her, uh, feelings to be expressed, uh, before the plot actually moves her forward into the game. Um, in the space between sessions where the other characters are hanging out, it is genuinely just, like, hangout times. Like, oh man, just imagine all of the incredible, uh, arguments that Karkat and Dave are having, and all the things they're getting up to. And uh, uh, I, I think that is also very interesting because, like you say, it does read like fanfic, right? It has kind of the same um, uh, uh, like precept, not, not the same presuppositions, but the same like priorities, mm-hmm, yeah. right? Where the priority is like, what what is a funny thing that uh, Dave and Karkat would argue over and how would they talk about that? Um the other thing that is happening, uh, I guess, kind of like in these sections, but sort of like in terms of fan reactions, is that uh, during this this little intermission, intermission two, uh, we get what I recall being just like one of the weirdest derails and is, in fact, one of the weirdest derails of uh, uh, the thread where uh, the, the whole setup for this. Um, is that before Carcat comes in, uh, Rose is explaining to Dave all of the research that she's done on the new session. Mm-hmm. And uh, in order to, like, as they're doing this, like, they make coffee. There's a coffee machine in the meteor, and they use the machine to make coffee, and they're, like, drinking coffee while they're talking. And this is, like, you know, it's a coffee break. It's a reference to Earthbound. Um, you can have coffee with Mr. Saturn in that mm-hmm. game. Um, How adult, too. Right. <laughs> uh, but Rose makes this kind of like a uh, one off comment where she's like, you know, like bring the coffee over before it develops that unctuous film on top. Uh, immediately after that, on page forty seven zero two, 
uh, we get a shot of her like pointing out something in the book, mm-hmm. Rose, and then you can see on top of the coffee a kind of like uh, it, it, it's you know it's a, a a a cup of coffee, but there's a kind of uh reflection or something on top that's like a colored reflection that looks to be like a colored reflection reflect uh, reflection of uh, Rose's outfit, but people in the thread see this and they're like, oh my god, that that comment that she made about unctuous film. That was foreshadowing. That's troll blood in the coffee. Gamzee, who we've already established, has been has disappeared. Right? Kanaya's really angry because she really wants to kill Gamzee. Uh-huh. Um, uh, Gamzee has like disappeared into the vent shafts of the meteor, and no one knows what he's up to or what he's doing. Uh, and they're like, "Oh my god, Gamzee stole all the troll corpses, and now he's putting troll blood into the coffee, and everyone is unknowingly drinking troll blood in their coffee." My god, my and this is like <laughs> this is what the thread talks about for like a page and a half, and this takes off into the fandom uh, to the degree that uh, uh, again, Hussey's girlfriend at the time has like has to come out and be like, "That's not what's happening." Like, it's just a reflection. It is interesting that uh, uh, that a few times it seems like there's been corrections by an, an additional authorial character figure who is not the author here. Yes. Like, that is a thing that I am noticing in going back over kind of, uh, uh, you know, the archive here mm-hmm. is that... Uh, at a certain point, Hussey does stop answering questions about the plot as directly. Uh, like, the Q&As are still happening. Um, but very often, like, certain comments to, like, uh, uh, stifle, like, weird spurs of fan discourse are being delegated to other people. Hmm. Which, um, you know, maybe... Uh, uh, I don't know any of this stuff. Don't want to speculate too much, but given what Hussey has said contemporarily about the feeling of, like, accidentally creating a cult, uh, and then trying to become like, sort of the, uh, like trying, uh, one of the strategies that they talked about in that interview with Polygon, uh, was about sort of, like, retreating from the fan base, right? That, that there was a sense of being, like, too close to the fan base. Uh, and so, like, it's one of those questions where, if you're looking at this historically, you're like, is this where that's starting to happen? Uh, where that strategy is starting to be developed of like drawing away mm-hmm. and then also sort of like some relevant follow-up questions what does that mean for the people around you who get this stuff delegated to them mm-hmm. um yeah yeah no let's just say other than that it's just an observation to make yeah the uh this whole section here too is just like lower dump city uh-huh it is interesting, again, thinking about delegation, right, that the characters now have to do, like, the the, the hussy insert <laughs> summary mm-hmm. um, to explain, like, everything that's happening here and, like, why, what what's going on is going on. Uh, I really <laughs> wish that we could just, like, get rid of... I know that we can't because it's plot critical, but god damn, every time we cut back to, like, other universe Jack Noir fighting... <laughs> you know, being like the plague of nations or whatever, right? It's just like, <laughs> God damn it. I this 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 is still going on. Like yes, it we is. have the bigger bad. Just get rid of the lesser bigger bad. Have Lord English punch this uh, dog bean in the head <laughs> and explode it. And then you know what I mean? Just I, look, and I know there's nothing has ever happened in this comic to make it less complicated. <laughs> so I know that can't happen. <laughs> But golly, like just having to know, knowing that this is going to come back at some point just mm-hmm. really gets me. Although I do love, I sent this to you on 4703, 
Yes. We got the big hat. We got the yeah. big boy big hat with his bomb yes. blowing stuff up. Uh-huh. The courtyard droll. Because uh in the in the void session, the battlefield will never develop. Mm-hmm. So they send out the courtyard droll and a little shuttle to the little tiny chessboard that exists literally at the center of Skya, and he blows the whole thing up, and we learn that the droll has a wonderful giant hat, uh, even when there are no prototypings. Yep. He's just great. He's the great guy. Mm-hmm. A plus. Um, we get this uh, this elaborate discussion, which I'm sure will matter at some point here, right? But like that, Skya is like in the game, presumably. Mm-hmm. It it is interested in self propagation, but passively. Uh huh. So it it can like change when things happen. And maybe where things happen. But ultimately, there's like a bunch of stuff in the game that it just is uninterested in doing. Mm-hmm. You know, so like it can change like where people land and it, when they land and things like that, you know, out of the meteor comets. It's this huge explanation we get. But ultimately, you know, it's not going to like warp. Basically, there's no universe in which like these four kids don't exist. There's there's some right. combo of four kids in any version of this like sub game of the beta kids alpha well uh, or wait well, i mean it's yes. the same timeline so i was thinking about which ones do we know first <laughs> i guess they're the right kids. right right um yeah. you know in in every version of the trolls there's going to be the same number of trolls they're all going to have kind of the same personalities so like this is another way of taking a run at um simultaneity um mm-hmm. you know and and rules of the gamifying it you know Right. It, it's not just like a thing that happens. It's that it's because of the passivi- passivity of the the engine, basically, that runs the game that uh, si- simultaneity is possible. Um, right. And the repetition of form and pattern. Um, yeah. But yeah, I love the suplex. I love the cape talk. It's funny. Uh, speaking of rep- repetitions. Yeah. So uh, just to unpack that, if you're not reading along. <laughs> so Carcat and Dave get into their little heterosexual tussle. Uh, and in the process, Carcat gets wrapped up in Dave's god tier cape and then uh, uh, suplex. Don't touch my um, cape. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, speaking of repetitions, though, uh, what do you think about these new trolls finally getting to talk? I don't care about them. <laughs> uh, just because like, it's a thing that'll come up later if I don't mention it now. Uh, Mina and Arania. Uh, are not named in the comic. So it's a progression of something that I noted at the beginning of Act 6, where, uh, you know, Homestuck starts out as the story of you, the reader, giving these commands. Uh, It progresses to the point where Hussey stops taking reader commands, but uh, opens the floodgates just enough to get the trolls named, uh, and then completely closes it off once we get into Act 6. And now, uh, you know, the story, quote-unquote, is entirely out of uh, uh, or like might seem to be entirely out of the reader's hands. Uh, so where are these names of uh, Mina and Arania coming from? Because we they don't get like introduction screens in the normal way. They just show up, uh, start doing stuff, and when they talk, they have names, not uh, uh, chum handles uh, or trollian handles or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, those names actually came out of the same threads where the original trolls were named. Oh, okay. So they were like sort of also ran names for those same trolls. Arania, for example, was Toby Fox's uh, input for naming Vriska. Interesting. 
right? Um, and I don't know who put in Mina, but like, it, same thing, right? When they tried to name Feferi, uh, someone put in Feferi and that was the one, but uh, a sort of runner up was Mina. Yeah, I don't, uh, I mean, I do think, I guess a couple things about these trolls, right? Like, they are, uh, I, I think the visual imagination of Homestuck, which I have been very complimentary of in the past, really, uh, like, not working out too great. Like, everyone wears the same clothes. They just have slightly different heads now. They're all interacting with each other. <laughs> Um, I, I don't really know, I, I mean, other than their actions, right? Like, I, I, an interesting thing about Feferi is, like, I don't feel like I have a good sense about Feferi as a character. Like, I, right. I think a lot of that seems to be fan work. There's just not a huge amount of her in the comic, right? Um, right. And so, mm -hmm. like, I know exactly how Arania, why would you name a character Arania when you have an Arania? But anyway. I don't know. Uh, the, uh, I know how Arania is very different from Vriska. Presumably, Mina is also very different from Feferi, but I don't really know what Feferi was all about, like other right. than, you know, the small amount that we got, which is maybe what, one fifteenth of what we got from Vriska, maybe less. Um, yeah. So it becomes it's a weird thing to for for her to be essentially a load bearing character at this point, you know, based on like all the information we have about how uh, uh, the Condes works and all that kind of stuff. Like, mm -hmm. presumably Mina's got to be important. I mean, based on what mm -hmm. we have, right? Based on And also based on, like, repetition, right? <laughs> right. Um, so, presumably she's got to be important. So, it's interesting for it to be a character who we really don't know that much about. Um, you know, I, or I guess maybe that's a question. Is she a repetition, you know, conceptually? Is she a repetition of the Empress or whatever? Or is she a repetition of the fairy? And mm -hmm. at this point of this reading, we don't really know, I guess. Right. We yeah, it's it's uh really unclear. Like as you say, we have so much of Riska that uh when Arania starts talking and doing stuff hell, when she showed up, like she actually was visually distinct from Vriska in a way that immediately got people to call her kind fang. Yeah, right. Uh right. Uh but we have so much about those characters, whereas like Mina showing up, like, okay, she's going to be not Feferi, but Feferi was so minimal that that could be literally anything on Earth. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's weird. Uh, uh, um, so. It is. Uh, I think it's interesting, just, just uh, as, we're, as we're getting close to the end here, uh, that John Sprite is prevented. Oh, yes, yeah. Uh, G-Cat will not let uh, Pop Pop's corpse be, be prototyped. I know, we could have had John Sprite. Everyone, everyone was like, oh, man, I can't wait for for John Sprite. I can't wait until we get, you know, the completion of the pattern that we expect from the first thing. And then here we are. We've got a you you thought you knew what the pattern was. Well, guess what? The pattern isn't that. In fact, the pattern is a little cat that's going to break everything. Oh, no, the rug <laughs> beneath my feet. Whoa. Uh, so that's 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 funny. That little cat is devious. It is. I don't like devious, I don't devious. like him. <laughs> um and uh oh here's another note i made i don't know you uh any other stuff that sticks out you want to talk about because i have like an unrelated thing that is still somehow weirdly related uh i don't have much plot wise i just have a couple of like internet history things to to hit okay well this is not a plot thing uh but is a thing that is notable so you know uh we've talked about repeatedly and, and even done some of the bonus odes on 
like 80s media that really seems to have a big impact on this right of course the never ending story being the template basically for the whole thing if you ask me um you know it's mm-hmm. it's very similar in 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 tone and concept and kind of the, the big like um assumptions that are underneath the whole thing we've talked about that but also little monsters and some of the other bonus episodes you can go to patreon.com slash range touch to check those out but uh here's the thing that i that that i wouldn't have put together and i just happened to watch it so i uh there was an arrow sale recently you know arrow being the uh, Mm -hmm. uh distribution company and they uh put out a a blu-ray of a little film called legend Oh, a yeah. Ridley Scott film called Legend. Did mm-hmm. you know about that movie? Uh, featuring everyone's favorite clown, Tim Curry. Featuring Tim Curry. So that's why I bought it, is that we did the It miniseries on Just King Things. And uh, the the commentary talked a lot about Legend. And I was like, I haven't seen Legend in a long time, but my memories of it were very strong. And so I during the sale, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll pay $20 for that. So I bought it on Blu-ray. Watched some great special features, by the way. Some really cool stuff about the effects there. Um, anyway. But uh, mm-hmm. great goblins, by the way, in that in that thing. If you're looking for a good old goblin, uh, goblins and uh, fair folk. But uh, guess what uh, the plot of that is about? Do you, do you remember the plot of Legend by any chance? Oh my God, um, she's it's a princess uh-huh. who's kidnapped by mm-hmm. Tim Curry Devil and needs to be saved. Uh, well, so yeah, yeah, yeah. She does ultimately need to be saved. Uh, weirdly enough, uh, Tom Cruise in that film wields an executioner's sword like uh, uh, Severian's. Uh-huh. It's, it's pretty weird. <laughs> it doesn't have a pointy tip. It's got the rounded off tip on it. Right, uh, right. I, you know, for, <laughs> for executioner's sword. Terminus est. Yeah, Terminus est. Uh, but no, what, so yes, that happens. But there's this whole like little uh, C plot within it where uh, she is being taken to be the kind of bride slash inheritor of, of darkness, which is like the big demon uh-huh. guy, his thing. Right, right. And his whole thing is that he is trying to lure her to the dark side, essentially. And he's like doing all these things to offer her power, glory, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. He mm-hmm. also keeps deferring to his father, father, Whoa. this off screen character who is constantly kind of in the background of the, the machinery of the thing. Uh, but of which he is only a representative. Um, right. He is trying to get her to become the Empress of Darkness to take over the world and do all this kind of stuff. And he manipulates her and kind of, uh, you know, uh, ultimately lures her. Maybe, although she's not really lured, she's just pretending to be lured, uh, but keeps her cloistered away and uh, with all of these benefits and things within his magic uh, evil mansion. Is that ringing any bells to you about uh, <laughs> something that might happen in this comic? Um, no. Okay. I'm not seeing any connections at all. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe I'm just wrong. Yeah. Anyway, what were you know. saying about I, internet are, history? What were some lures? I don't know. <laughs> no, what were you <laughs> saying about internet history? Uh, 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 we'll talk more, I think, about that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Dante Bosco, uh-huh. actor, voice actor, player, player of Rufio yep. in Hook, uh, starts reading Homestuck during this point. Oh, of our reading uh-huh. um he starts his own live blog speaking of those um uh hussy is so excited that they start like changing parts of the website to talk directly to dante bosco um like at the little like at the top of uh, if you have the the reader right the app um it's just, it still looks like this on the actual website as well um 
but at the top there's like a little run of links and it's like you know a uh, home jump map log search etc cetera, etc cetera. and at the very end of that uh hussy is like putting in like you know like it starts out like you know hello dante or something and then like as uh bosco continues reading uh starts updating as like you're doing it man you're making it happen that that sort of thing so that was that was a thing that was going on um eventually someone spoils for bosco the uh reason the reason bosco starts reading is that enough people are like hey dante bosco you should read homestuck he's like okay i guess i'm gonna try this people keep talking about it and then someone eventually spoils for him the fact that people want him to read it because at a certain point, uh, Andrew Hussey like makes out with him as Rufio in it. Mm -hmm. uh, and everyone is is very, uh, you know, sad about that, that it got spoiled. But he continues reading anyway, and he sort of like floats around the sidelines of various Homestuck projects in the future. So anyway, that's where that all starts. Hmm. Um... Uh, there's a brief kerfluffle where a Homestuck porn parody that people are trying to film falls through, like a cosplay porn parody. This because is this the is the moment of the porn parody. Yes, right. This ain't wow. whatever XXX. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone tries to do one of those for Homestuck. A group of fans try to put that together. And, uh, wouldn't you know it? <laughs> doesn't work out I, well <laughs> i you know stranger things have happened that's fascinating what a, what a time because that you was know. like a, you know this was an era because this is what like um this is 2012 so maybe this is a little bit before it but you know around this like 2012 2013 2014 is where like porn parodies are getting like mainstream media coverage not like cnn yes. right but like you know when like the justice league porn parody comes out like the the game sites or like the media sites like write funny reviews of them or whatever right mm -hmm. um like it's a weird time where like the 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 i don't know like um at some point there was a fandom uh impulse or like a, you know an impulse to be like we must disavow the pornographic um and this uh, by this point that's like disappeared um you know with within like coverage of fandomy stuff mhm mm yeah, no, there was like it was like this window of time where uh, I think, uh, you know, porn studios uh, kind of realized they could get like buy in from just doing the, the most absurd parodies that they could. Right. That there's uh, uh, there's something here, I think, about like the move onto the Internet and everything where kind of being uh, uh, over the top or doing something strange and silly and kind of pointless can get eyes on you, and that is its own kind of currency. Um, although this is not, you know, the Homestuck porn parody that falls through is, as I said, I think it's a fan thing being done by uh, cosplayers. Family um, Guy, the triple X parody, released in great. 2012. Mm -hmm. So this is exactly sort of the time. Well, something else that happened in 2012. Coney 2012. Oh, no. I've told you about, wait, did we talk about Coney 2012 the last time? No, I don't think we did. Oh, I, the first time I saw anything about Coney 2012, it was like uh, like a sticker on a wall in a park. <laughs> like that no one else was ever in. I like walked through it on my way home every day. And it was just like, why, yeah. why is this the place that like Coney 2012 got a foothold? But anyway, please explain, Michael, what Coney 2012 was. So the reason this comes up is because uh, <laughs> Hussey reblogs it uh, on Tumblr as oh. like, hey, this is an important thing that maybe you should, uh, uh, you know, take take a, a look at. 
2012 was a short documentary that was posted to Tumblr um, by, and it was produced by a sort of like company organization called Invisible Children. Um, that was it, the the uh, argument of the video is that uh, there was a war uh, criminal cult leader uh, and general like, you know, a, a fugitive, right? Like a, a, a international fugitive named Joseph Coney in Uganda uh, who had assembled basically like a little private army and was going around and like, you know, uh, 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 killing people, kidnapping their children and training them to be child soldiers. And that this was a huge problem in Uganda, um, and uh, we needed to do something about it. Who is we? Well, not the people in Uganda, certainly. Uh, we means the people here in, in the United States, uh, particularly uh, white people, because it turns out Invisible Children is like a, a right-wing evangelical like uh, Christian mission. Uh, and their entire uh, sort of deal is like wanting to go to Uganda and uh, kind of set up maybe their own little like compounds and, uh, uh, you know, uh, let's say, you know, establish their own set of operations. And, and uh, they create this really slickly edited, uh, really deceptive documentary that doesn't, you know, talk about how uh, Coney is not actually, like, Co Coney exists and is a huge problem, but is not uh, the active and, like, harmful problem in Uganda at the moment uh, in the way that the documentary presents it. I think at that point he might have actually uh, been forced out of Uganda and might have been in hiding or something. Um... But anyway, uh, uh, the whole thing, like, it goes super viral, right? Because it is so slickly edited. It's so good thinking about affect and public sentiment, right? Um, well, and also, it's, about I mean, it's, it's hugely important for, because the people who, you know, at the time that I saw really caring a huge amount about it, and had already been caring about Invisible Children, like, as a thing, um, as, mm -hmm. as an organization, uh, were all, um, like, uh, uh, Christian mission kids you yeah know, college students for, exactly. for the time for mm -hmm. me but right like it, it was a hugely viral phenomenon amongst that group already who still you know there are lots of sex within that uh, you know sects sex um uh, <laughs> who uh who are interested in this kind of phenomenon across the board some very very right wing and some maybe less but you know the idea of children uh that need to be um that that uh, people from the U.S. need to arm themselves and go and liberate uh, trap children somewhere. Um, uh -huh. Huge amount of coverage over that, especially over the past two or three years of lots of uh, NGOs and religious organizations using that as a reason slash excuse to, uh, you know, do extra legal stuff. Um, right. Uh, and so, like, th this, the Coney 2012 is part of a longer train, both b before and after of that kind of uh, maneuver. Right. Uh, and I bring this up not because it's terribly important to Homestuck. I, I just do note that, you know, uh, uh, Hussey reblogs the video and is like, hey, this seems important. And then later walks it back uh, because this thing meets a whole bunch of criticism from people who are like, hey, this is just like, you know, uh, weird white savior paramilitary shit. Um, uh, but I, I pointed out just because uh, it 
what you just said, I think it speaks to something that is uh, coming up through the internet uh, at this point historically and that we're dealing with today, which is all of these, you know, calls uh, to people to arm themselves and go liberate children from places, right? That that took on a very specific valence as it rubber bands back into the United States and we get shit like QAnon and so on and so forth, right? Um so we're seeing the internet broadly, right? Not just uh, uh, in terms of Homestuck making this world, but we're seeing uh, new developments in how virality uh, manufactures like certain types of sentiment or like gets certain viewpoints uh, uh, passed around and popularized. Just something to think about. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and I guess, yeah, uh, other, other than that, uh, we're kind of done you know I, we we didn't talk too much about uh what's going on with with uh jane and all the other alpha kids but that's because we're going to have plenty of time to work through it yet just know for now that they are sad yep <laughs> everyone is sad they're playing uh, ghostbusters 2 the mmorpg <laughs> actually i wanted to ask you about that what did you think about ghostbusters 2 the mmorpg it just feel, like uh you know I, I love my darling boy mm-hmm. i think he's great this is just like a classic john joke that like John legitimately and actually likes a thing that sucks <laughs> <laughs> and he's making people engage with it with him and they feel obligated to do so because he's such a <laughs> darling boy. Yeah, but he's a little less of a darling boy this time. He's a little uh, uh, pissy about Jade wanting to be a, a dog girl in the game. He's he's a darling boy who's growing up a little bit. Yeah. And he doesn't like when his, uh, I, you know, he, he's a lot like Carcat in that way, right? Where, it, like, he's written in such a way where he has a very particular, like, ossified imagination of what is good, and interrupting uh-huh. that is bad for John. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think uh, her not taking Ghostbusters seriously, um, big air quotes <laughs> here, uh, uh, is, uh, you know, that yeah. hurts John. Yeah, I just I really love on page 4735 uh, this like screenshot we get of quote unquote the game. <laughs> um, that's just like uh, a forest. <laughs> yes. And it's it's dozens of Ghostbusters running through the forest with like little uh, plum bobs over their heads to show that they're player characters. And then there's a uh, for whatever reason, like a, a picnic basket and a, a, a blanket like spread out. And there's like a beach ball being kicked around in the crowd a couple of beach balls and then there's like two or three slimers flying around and then there's just a bunch of ecto ones like literally flying through the sky um i love this like forecasted imagination of like precisely how stupid a ghostbusters 2 mmo would eventually look as you eventually got the flying mount which would just be a flying car i i just i love that uh visual gag. yeah i think this is all very funny but it like doesn't yeah like you were saying it doesn't really go anywhere uh yeah i do like uh i really like like there's a great like uh one two punch of a gag where you can see it's on 47 30 you can see them playing it right and it's just people it's just like it's the cro- salamanders and crocodiles or whatever being like right like they're just like saying what they would normally say and then john is like i keep trying to tell the salamanders and chess guys not to cross the streams so they keep crossing the streams <laughs> and then you go to the next panel and it's dave sprite in this like land cafe with all of these yes. salamanders and chessmen and crocodiles alligators or whatever and turtles and they're just all playing at the same time right i love i love the uh yeah the land cafe on the battleship (laughs) (laughs) just 
all of the consorts and carapations like playing the games together. Yeah. I think that's really good. It's funny <laughs> to me. Like, but yeah, it doesn't do much other, um, much other than that. Well, all right. Uh, yeah, I think that then wraps it up for episode seven, part three. And that also wraps it up for episode seven, the whole deal. Uh, next time we will begin episode eight of Homestuck Made This World. Uh, and that means we will read up through page 5,028. Uh, Cameron, you want to take us out? Goodbye! Goodbye!